welcome to the show travel conversations by the rustic travel podcast this is a show where we will try to recreate those best moments we all have experienced while traveling which is meeting new people and hearing about their stories and experiences in each episode we will have a guest traveler with the most interesting story and travel experience today's guest is rajkumar who is back on the show after enthralling us a few weeks ago talking about his motorcycling adventures today he is going to talk about his other passion scuba diving and then i started seriously trying to you know wander around finding dive sites to do them and so on so so then i took a three week holiday in the philippines and i went on all around and then there's something called a sardine run a sardine run is where you get a school of sardines and these are like at about 10 to 12 meters depth so it's not very deep so you go below them they've dived, dived in like i said uh, the gulf of oman uh, musandam peninsula i've dived in jordan in aqaba i've dived in egypt to the sham al sheik uh, that is another very exciting thing because uh, they've got some great wrecks including a world class wreck called the SS Thistlegold Rajkumar is from Kozhikode in North Kerala where he was born after graduating as an electronics and telecommunication engineer he joined the IAF the Indian Air Force after serving for 8 and a half years with the IAF he retired voluntarily in 1997 as a squadron leader Since then he has been working as a telecommunications systems expert engineer in the oil and gas sector with various companies in the Middle East in countries such as Syria, Qatar and Abu Dhabi where he presently lives along with his family comprising of his wife and two daughters. He will be retiring in 2023 something that he's eagerly looking forward to so that he could get on his motorcycle and travel around the world i'm your host hemant soring welcome back uh, raj thank you hemant it's good to be back great great before uh, i ask you any questions let me tell you some quick facts right which i have sort of put down there four of them in fact uh, about uh, the subject we're going to talk about one About 71% of the earth's surface is covered with water and the oceans hold about 96.5% of all earth's water. Two, the first life originated in the oceans around 3 billion years ago. So all of us essentially are creatures from the ocean. Three, it is estimated that around 1 million species of animals live in the oceans. and this is out of the total of around 1 to 2 million species of animals around the world and uh, in fact many of the species are yet to be identified four there is so little we know about our oceans scientists estimate that we've only explored 5% only 5% of the ocean so these are the four quick facts and uh, Raj, what do you think about these? It's humbling. There's no other word for it. It's extremely humbling. In fact, some of this is new information for me, by the way. But it's 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 also a terrifying thought. Now, to me, I think uh, that is really one compelling reason to take a peek below the surface. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I think many of us, including me, uh, I started scuba diving um, two, three years ago. And all the facts which I just mentioned, I had no idea about any of these. And after I started discovering what in the waters, the life forms, the marine life, I read about it more, I researched more. There are a lot of issues which are there, a uh, lot of pollution, which we're going to talk about it uh, also later in the show, uh, which is sort of harming this life. Uh, it was, as you rightly said, it's humbling and mind blowing. And uh, I think the more we uh, go there, uh, the more we know about it. And, and scuba diving is, I think, it's the most accessible way we could do that, right? So how did your passion for scuba diving start, Raj? Tell us about that. No, it's actually very mundane. I mean, it's nothing like a epiphany. It was just that um, about 10, 12 years ago, somewhere, I think it was 2008 or 2009, I was on a cruise ship, uh, which was cruising out of uh, the into the uh, into the small island of Cozumel in Mexico. I think we started from Cape Canaveral or somewhere there in Miami, and it was a kind of a five-day cruise or something. You know, the regular the family was on board. It is uh, terribly dull on a cruise ship. I mean, they feed you and then you're held captive and all the other stuff. So, uh, I wasn't really excited about it. But the moment we hit Cozumel. And there was a day excursion or whatever they call it. So they let you off the boat like a prisoner or something, and you're free to go and do what you want, and you have to come back. Minus, of course, any alcohol you may have, uh, you know, thought of sneaking in. <laughs> they will strip search you and take it away so they can make you buy uh, their, you know, heavy overpriced alcohol on board. Anyway, bottom line, uh, we went out on. Uh, my wife has a fear, not she's not very fond of water. I've been uh, swimming and all that for quite some time, and uh, I, I'm, I'm quite comfortable in the water. So uh, there was this guy who said, uh, you know, why don't you go snorkeling with us? There's also a glass bottom boat. So if your wife doesn't want to snorkel, she can just sort of look through the bottom. And I said, yeah, great idea. So me and my daughter, we just put on these snorkels and we're just swimming around on the surface. It was stunning. It was incredible. I don't know whether any of you have, I mean, I don't know whether you have had an opportunity to go to Cozumel uh, in Mexico. It's in the Gulf of Mexico. But it was, the visibility was like mindless. It was like 40 meters. I could see the bottom. And when I look down and I see divers down there, I went to see guys with the tanks and stuff. And I said, man, that must be great. I mean, looking down from the surface, if this is what it looks like, imagine going you know, up close with these kind of things. You'd see a whole lot of fish floating around and stuff. That set me on this road. I got back to, I was in Qatar at that time. So I got back to Qatar and I was looking for ways and means to do it. It didn't really happen. In 2011, I moved to Abu Dhabi. And then, because in Qatar, I had certain other proper issues with taking time off from work and all that. I put together about two weeks. I said, I have to go and learn how to scuba dive. That's the first step. So I didn't know where to go. I started Googling and everything. And I don't know whether you know this, but about, I think about 30 or 35% of uh, Hadis worldwide certification at the entry level, which is uh, the open water uh, diver level comes out of Kotao uh, in Thailand. So Kotao is a little island uh, off uh, Suratani. So you come from Bangkok down south, and from Suratani, you have to catch a boat to Kotao. So I, the more I looked at it, the more I didn't feel comfortable about it. I mean, uh, to me, Bangkok, Thailand is a pretty overrun place, and Kotao seemed like a factory where they produce uh, scuba divers by the thousands or tens of thousands. So I don't want to go there. Now, what's next? 
Well, I've been eyeing Philippines for a while, and I just said, man, I've never, I mean, I've heard so much about the Philippines, but everything is kind of like, you know, hit or a miss. Nobody talks very nicely about Philippines. Nobody talks badly about it either. I said, this is an opportunity. And I was reading up on all these diving uh, dive sites and so on, and they said, Philippines is a great place to dive. Now, the next challenge was, of course, to find, see, the, the, wherever you go to train, there has to be an ecosystem. So there has to be enough people coming in so that these dive shops uh, can cater to the people who are coming in. And they build a very robust uh, training uh, sort of a network or a infrastructure around there. So also, if you're training, you have to go to a place where in the bay is quiet, where you can dive in shallow, uh, easy dives without getting caught in a drift or a current and things like that. So all that is important. Suppose the wind, there are places where the weather can turn very, very violent, very quickly the surface winds pick up and next thing you know, the very choppy surface currents. And even though the dive might have been great, you resurface, next thing you know, you're caught up in all the surface currents. So, so you've got to find a very quiet bay and a good place to turn to dive. Of course, the, as you go forward, you can learn how to be on challenging dives because you will get, gain experience and so on. So I looked at the Philippines, I kept looking around. The problem with the Philippines is mainly because these are scattered islands all over. You have to take flights everywhere. Boats are like overnight boats and so on. So I was initially looking at Luzon Island, which is where Manila is. It's the biggest island in the Philippines, the whole archipelago. It's about 7,000 odd islands. I couldn't find anything you know, very exciting in, in Luzon. So I thought I'll go down south. So Mindoro is another island where it appears that there seems to be some kind of great diving as well as I've said I'll go and see if I can find a shot. So what I did was I just packed up some stuff, about seven kilos, whichever the budget airline would have loved. And I just hopped onto the next flight to the Philippines, all very open-ended. I had no idea what I was getting into. Now I go there, and I'm wandering around in, in, in down south of Mindoro, and I end up uh, at a dive spot uh, called Porto Galera. And uh, here we find a lot of dive shops because the diving there is supposedly very, very exciting because this, uh, there is something called Worthy Island which is an island that is close by where they've got some great wall diving and stuff. And all along this bay in Porto Galera, there is this huge ecosystem of deltas. Porto Galera actually means port of galleons. So this is where some Portuguese or Spanish, I think it was Spanish galleons used to uh, come around. And then there were a lot of shipwrecks there because these, these uh, vessels, uh, which were wooden hulled vessels back in the 16th century, had uh, sort of uh, floundered there and, and, and uh, you know, there was still a lot of people who were diving around to pick up stuff that these... Uh, and the funny thing is they had both. They had some very quiet places where you can learn to dive. There are also some very challenging uh, dive sites as well. Where in fact, I think one world record for depth uh, sometime, sometime in the early 90s was set in Porto Galera. It was 220 meters or something. But of course, the record has moved on to something else now. But I'm saying it's possible to do both. So I hung around there and met up with an Australian fellow who had a dive shop. And uh, I, I said, hey, listen, do you do courses? He said, no problem. And I've got an instructor as well, handy. So it's a one-on-one, -on -one, unlike Kotao and all that, where they put eight students under one instructor. But uh, what happened was that this girl, I still remember her name, her name was Tanya. She was Swedish or Finnish or something like that. But uh, she had just finished her dive uh, master and her dive instructor course. There itself, she had come as a backpacker or something, stayed on, enjoyed the diving, and moved all the way up to instructor. And she was taking on a, a part time with this guy, with Jono, with who was the uh, dive shop owner, to train people who were coming in. And she was really excited about teaching. She was barely 22 or something like that. And here I was, close to 50. I mean, I must have been 48 or something at that time. And then this girl takes me under her wing pretty much. 
And because I'm one of the first few students that she's had, she's like really, really excited. And she puts me through the paces 100%. And she is very good at the water. Looking back on it, I still think that one of the reasons why I feel very confident in the water is because she made me do it like that. I was following what she was doing and your buoyancy and everything else. She really, really, I think, taught me right. So later on, it was very easy for me to pick up some good diving habits, I think. Anyway, so bottom line, uh, I finished the course from there. And I was a certified PADI, that is Professional Association of Divers International, open water diver, which entitles you to, to dive with the proper guide up to 18 meters. That is PADI's uh, restriction for recreational diving, of course. So now right, I started, so, sorry, uh, sorry yeah. to interrupt. So uh, no, go what, does, what does open water diver entail? Uh, how many days does it have and what all goes into that? Just... Right, right. So, yeah, so PADI has got, okay, let's first see how PADI works. So there are multiple professional bodies that do dive certification. There is one in France called SSI. There is one, uh, there is BSAC in England, which is a British Subaqua Club, which is more like a mentoring club format, uh, which, by the way, I'm a member of the local BSAC club here also. We mentor people. It's not a paid certification. It's probably, arguably, one of the better quality certifications you can pick up because there's no... Uh, the real pressure to certify so unless you are uh, you have done what you need to do and unless the instructor is totally satisfied he will not certify you whereas with paddy it, because it's a professional certifying body they take money for it they may i'm just saying they may set the standards a little differently if you pay them and then you don't do certain things they'll still might you know it's, anyway so paddy's recreational driving diving track goes as start point is the uh, open water diver the next is the advanced open water diver. The next is rescue diver, after which they start their professional track, which is called the paddy uh, dive master. Then it goes on to assistant instructor, instructor, and all that stuff. That's a professional track. So in the recreational diving side, which is mainly uh, open water, which is a beginner certification, advanced open water rescue. Now with uh, open water diver, you start with zero, nothing at all, no understanding what diving is, but you have to be able to swim. So you have a swim test, which is a 200 meter swim test. You have to swim unassisted. Uh, you can take your own time, but you have to swim up to 200 meters without putting your feet down. That is a requirement. Number two, you should be able to float. I think it's a 10 or 15 minute float test. And of course the remaining things they will teach you, which is your basic physics of what, how you breathe underwater and uh, what is the, uh, what does the, what do the lungs do? When poured over the air, uh, uh, the, wherever there is the, the, the air pockets in your body, which is near ears and all that, what all happens to it? How does it compress under pressure? What is the basic physics of it? Which is like every ten meters you go, you you double the atmospheric, you go by one atmospheric pressure higher, and so on and so forth. And the reverse of the whole thing about how your body expands and behaves as you uh, ascend it. You know, so on and so forth. So it also then tells you what all gear that you need to survive underwater, which is, of course, your, your regulator and your tank regulator and your uh, budget control device. Uh, and, of course, the other accessories like your mask and your uh, fins and so on. Too. So now, uh, once you, they put you through, initially, it's a four, it's a, the whole course is a four-day course. As part of the first day, what you do is you go and sit down with the instructor and go through a soft copy on a, on a video about the basics of what I just mentioned. On the second day, that is day one, uh, I mean, invariably, you start on the day and then you do videos and look at things and all that. The second day, you start off on your closed water sessions, which is normally done in a swimming pool where they, they show you how you put on your uh, uh, gear, which is your PCD, your 
device and hook up your tank and the regulator and how you breathe inside the water with your uh, tank, uh, I mean the air from your tank through the regulator and how the regulator, so the regulator has got what you call an oct octopus, it's got multiple, it's got spare regulator for your body and so on and how to inflate your BCD and so on. It, they run through the process. So your equipment, they show you how it works. They show you how you breathe inside the water and they do uh, about two to three sessions of this close water session. They call them close water dive. They're not really much of a dive. You go down into the pool, maybe about eight or 10 feet, and then you stay there. And then they show you how some of these skills are, which including how to put your, take your mask off, your mask gets flooded. How do you do it? You have to learn how to breathe through your mouth and so on. Then the next day they take you onto uh, two dives uh, in uh, open water. So there are actually four open water dives altogether. Over the next two days, you complete these four open water dives. Along with that, the, so these are all training dives. So you don't go very, very deep. So on, day, on the third day, that is after a closer session, what you would do is you would go for a maybe eight or 10 meter dive, uh, maybe eight, six, eight meters, where you kneel on a sandy bottom and you do all the skills that you practiced inside fresh water, inside the uh, close water dive. You would take your mask off, learn how you know to clear it and put it back, and you learn what you do if you take a regulator flows it gets out of your mouth. You learn to sweep it with your hand and put it back in your mouth, and blah blah. All of that goes on. Now you do, and the next dive, the, the dive after that, you learn how to uh, deflate your BCD correctly to descend, and then to trim yourself in the water, your buoyancy, and how to fin correctly so it can move. It. But make sure that you don't flail around with your arms and so on. All of this you have to learn as you go along. And the, the sad part about scuba diving is that there's no other way you can learn it other than by doing it. So each time you have to get better and better and better. So you do these four dives. Finally, you're able to survive underwater. They give you your, uh, your uh, certification. Some people do it very quickly. They're very good in the water. Like my daughter, I took her to, uh, to Kotao, in fact, uh, later on, maybe a few years ago. And she learned, and she was very good. She went for a tri dive when we were in Jordan in a cover in the Red Sea. She was very good. She came back. So, your, uh, how comfortable you are in the water is actually determined, or rather, it is the sure sign of that is how much of air do you use? Because you, you go in there with a, a 12 liter tank normally, and the aluminum tank contains 12 liters and 200 bar of, it's under 200 bar pressure. Now, generally, you have a you have a pressure gauge on your on uh, connected to your tank, so that you can keep monitoring your pressure. So, when you come up to about 50 bar, you generally uh, start your ascent. That's suppose that 50 bar is allows you to do a safe ascent uh, from wherever you are at whatever depth you start your ascent. Now, generally, people use up this if you're a newbie, you're starting new. They they tend to hyperventilate when they don't breathe deeply and exhale then inhale and exhale deeply in the right way. They tend to hyperventilate, which is just huffing and puffing because they're in a bit of a panic about what's going on around them. They're in strange and alien surroundings. So therefore they start using up a lot of air. They waste a lot of air. So you'll find that a normal dive for a more um, a comfortable diver would be maybe about one hour, maybe he would use about 150 bar, maybe not one hour, 50 minutes or something. This would be exhausted in about 30 minutes. Maybe the person would have exhausted 150 bar and leave you with 50 bar and immediately stress it. So it, that shows how comfortable you are in the water. Now, when my daughter was, she was very good. She came back with almost half a tank. And the and the, the, the guy who took her down was saying, because they, they, they hold you with a scruff, and then they can hold you and take you around. Because you have not learned the diving. It's called it's called uh, Discover Scuba. Oh, I forgot to mention, there's something like that also in Paddy. You discover scuba is if you don't know what you want to do and you're willing to give it a try, they take you down there with holding you with the scruff of your neck with all your gear in place and breathing through the mouth. And then once you're done, you come back and say, I, I want to do the course. Then they will take it as one credit towards your course. 
Incidentally, sorry, I was reading uh, on the Pari site the other day. So they, they added one more course called Scuba Diver Course, which is half of open water diver. So you, so you get a Scuba Diver certificate in two days, whereas open water you get four days. So <laughs> I am a little behind the times then because I didn't know that honestly. Yeah, yeah no, I, 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 I was just uh, reading the other day and I came across that. Uh, but but still, oh, you're, yeah. Uh, See, I wonder what purpose it serves. My personal yes. view is that sometimes there is so much of pressure to take money and certify. It's not a good idea because you have to remember that underwater, whatever you say, is the most inhospitable and alien atmosphere on earth. Meaning you're on life support, 100%. 30 seconds or a minute. I'm not trying to scare anybody here. I'm just saying it as a fact. You're on 100% life support. You best step moment you step off the boat and and start your descent. You are on life support. Now the moment you out of out of air for 30 seconds, 40 seconds, one minute, you're you're you know no longer uh, you're no longer alive. Simple. So therefore, you have to be very very sure what you're getting into. You have to know your limits. You have to be well trained, and that's what's going to keep you safe and alive. It's a very safe sport as long as you don't push your limits, you don't do anything stupid, and really are well trained. So when I started uh, doing scuba diving, uh, I remember my first dive, I hyperventilated big time. And in fact, uh, many dives later on, my first dive, I always hyperventilate, and my actually 150 bars is over in half an hour, but my second dive is better. So I improve. So you're absolutely right. It depends on you know different people how comfortable they are with water. And uh, I think one of the things uh, I raised this point of uh, Paddy adding one more uh, uh, intermediate uh, uh, diving certification is that uh, while certain uh, certifications are required, one should know, one should uh, understand from a trained instructor. But it always comes with more dives you do. I think that, that's the key. Uh, what do you think uh, about that, Raj? Uh, so, see, one of the problems with diving is unlike anything else, there is no getting around it. You have to dive if you want to improve. A lot of people cannot afford the time and the money to continue to dive. So people say, yeah, I've gone around a little bit. I've seen some corals. I've seen this thing. I'm now done with it. I met, I've met a lot of people like that. So I actually do tours and take people on diving holidays where they learn how to dive. So I have, I have some tie-ups with dive shops wherein I know the instructors personally and uh, they have trained a lot of people I have brought. So I take groups of five or six regularly and then take them to the Philippines and then get them trained. Some of them have come back for more. Some people have become lifelong, like I think four or five or six. There's one guy who's every trip I do, he comes with me still. He's, he's now a, uh, he's a advanced open water. He's got maybe 100 plus dives done already, but he still comes with me every trip. And there are other guys who have come and done their advanced courses. Some people have just stopped. Some people, that same day, they said, I'm done. I don't want to do anything with you. I'm going to my room and I'll take the next flight back. Because some people have actually discovered that they don't like it at all. They're very frightened and so on. So it's nothing uh, like everybody has to dive and they have to know. It's just that if you feel comfortable. And another thing is like motorcycling that we were talking about earlier. Uh, one of the things about diving is you are, it's not, a, it's not a competitive sport. It's purely a very visual sport. And you are, your only enemy is yourself, your panic or whatever. And your, as how prepared you are will eventually make you a better and better diver. The more you are prepared and the more you enjoy yourself, 
the better you get at it and the more you relish it. And there is so much a variety in diving that once you start on that, you can carry on into different kinds of diving. And that will make sure that you will enjoy it a lot, lot more. So for somebody who wants to uh, pursue scuba diving, let's say for life, uh, and they obviously want to go for a party or SSI certification, according to you, uh, which one or which ones should they do? So no, I, uh, you're saying which which kind of certification is what you're saying? Yes, I mean, should they? I mean, uh, should they just do open water diver and be done with it and just keep on doing dives, or should they do advanced as well? That would, you know, maybe. Yeah, that, that's actually a very good question, Heyman. Because see, uh, number one, uh, one of the reasons why Paddy restricts people with uh, open water certification to 18 meters is because they believe that your skill levels are still not enough for you to, to do deeper diving. So uh, deep dives and all that are modules that are included in advanced open water. So the problem could be that even let's say you're an open water diver, which is Paddy's entry level certificate. You have done 50, 100 dives. You're very comfortable in the water. And I've found by the way that younger people are far better at this than older people. Like I started when I was about 48 or close to 50. So, and whereas uh, 47 or 48, somewhere there. And I thought I was handicapped by my age because learning a new skill, especially things that are kind of life-threatening uh, while you're under a lot of pressure, you adapt to it much better when you're nice and nimble and flexible and you're young. You're more risk-taking, which may or may not be a good thing, but you'll definitely be more experimental. You're willing to l unlearn a lot of stuff, which you'd have, for me, I have to unlearn a lot more than somebody who's 25 or 22. So I found the younger people generally take to it like a duck to water, so I mean, so to speak. So um, as now for for when you do paddies under uh, first entry level certification, and if you're doing recreational diving, you go to certain dive shops. Most of the good dives, the challenging dives that you would like to do, would probably be deeper than 18. They look at a certificate and they might say, "I'm sorry, I can't let you dive because if it's a safe dive shop, they will not take on a guy." who's on an 18-meter certification to a, to a wreck site, which is 30 meters deep. So, in other words, your diving options will be restricted. So, definitely, you should do your advanced open water because that brings a different level of skills. And then it, it complements what you already learned, and it also gives you the skills required to do more challenging dives. Now, number three, uh, the rescue uh, also, in my view, is a very good idea. You should do rescue as well, because this is the first two levels of certification are about yourself. How safe a diver are you? How good are you in the water? How you can do your buoyancy adjustments and your trim and how well you're trimmed in the water and so on. But the next one, which is the rescue diving uh, course, is basically about how much you can look out for other people in the water and do things which may at some point in time, aid a diver in distress. So this is really important because it, uh, diving is, a, is, a, is kind of a, you know, a buddy sport. So you'll have other people with you. And if there is, God forbid, a reason why you can intervene in a train for it, and you'll definitely be able to also rescue. One of the good things with the rescue module is it also points out areas that are potentially hazardous, which you need to know. You already do know, but when it is when it is something that is shown as these are the areas you've got to watch out where these things can happen, and you approach it like that, you will definitely be in a position to act upon a problem. If it could be like a if the regulator's hose is bust and you suddenly you've got something, you know, your air loss is complete and total. What do you do? Or you've got a buddy who's tired on the surface and the currents are picking up. How do you tow him? And all of these are practiced also. 
So there's a there's a tire diver toe. There is a whole lot of other stuff like this. Now these things are really so. I, I think if you're if you're keen on diving regularly, go up to rescue and you can stop. Unless you want to pursue a, 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 a professional, uh, I wouldn't say I'm not talking commercial diving. This is still recreational diving, but as a, mm, a dive guide or an assistant instructor or helping somebody, then you may go up to a uh, dive master. But dive masters mainly are just for being dive guides. Beyond that, of course, it's a big challenge. I like for me at my age, I'm not even I cannot even think of doing an instructor course. So I have to be really, really motivated, and I'm not. So for young people who want to go up that course, that's fine. But most instructors don't really go very forward because they, they learn, then they might work for a little while, then they sort of slowly be drop because diving never pays good money. They just pay us for the students you have, and it's barely like they'll probably give you a place to stay. And the dive shop owner might make a bit of money, but the instructors and all these people barely scrape along. So if somebody's thinking that they want to quit their job and become a dive instructor, well, good luck, but uh, you'll probably be on beans and rice for the rest of your diving career. <laughs> right. So, Raj, how many dives have you done, and till what level are you certified? Uh, I'm a rescue diver, the Paddy Rescue. And also, I was a BSAC member. So the BSAC, uh, one of the good things about BSAC is, BSAC is the British Subaqua Club, and this is a is a club uh, which is started in uh, in England, of course, in the United Kingdom. And the Prince of Wales is the de facto chairman. So, uh, and this is what it does is the BSAC uh, starts up clubs in local communities, and then they encourage uh, divers who are there to teach other people how to dive. It's to promote the sport. So it's not so much as to make money or anything like that. It's just to promote the sport. So the club will put its resources together. They're actually getting money from the from the, from the government as well. And all clubs that have been uh, chartered have got some help coming in, including uh, you, you take a club membership of, I think it's 50 pounds a year. Uh, you get diver insurance uh, and you get a few other things which are actually bundled in into your uh, club membership. Now, the good thing here is because you're a member, the other people will mentor you. So the instructors there who have already worked their way up the, the, the whole instructional chain uh, from a beginner to there under the mentorship of somebody who may or may not have left by that time. And so you've got all levels of divers. They call it ocean diver, sport diver, ocean diver, and then go on for. So this is the equivalent with uh, Paddy. But their, their standards are slightly higher. For instance, in the advanced open water, you do the 30, you do your deep divers maybe uh, 40, 42 meters. Uh, but technically, 30 meters is your limit. 30 meters. In the ocean diver, in BSAC, you go 50 meters. And on air, now slowly, as you will be aware, because air has its restrictions. In air, uh, when you go below 66 meters, turns toxic. Because oxygen turns toxic, it's something to do with partial pressures and all that. But uh, actually, air turns toxic beyond 66 meters. So when you go to depth, you have to use a mixture of gases, which is a more technical uh, or rather advanced concept. Nitrox, of course, which is a combination of nitrogen and oxygen, wherein you reduce the, the uh, amount of oxygen. And I'm sorry, reduce the amount of oxygen and reduce the amount of nitrogen. Nitrogen has got other problems, including uh, toxicity, uh, uh, what is called nitrogen narcosis and so on. So that's, and then you use uh, trimix and other gases, which are common in helium and uh, nitrogen and oxygen, uh, when you go deeper, because oxygen, uh, air itself, there's a limit sort of. So when you're diving is there, you have to be careful beyond a certain depth. In in the ocean diver course, uh, they go up to 50 meters on air, which is actually quite challenging. And it's, it's very good for people to understand narcosis and all very clearly. So, because that's an effect that a lot of people find very, very strange. 
I don't know, Hemant, whether you've you've experienced it, uh, but uh, not yet. <laughs> Yeah, okay, when you do, so what they do is uh, they take you down. So Narcos is basically like, they call it uh, the, the rapture of the team, which is uh, like they say for every 10 meters you do, you feel like you had another martini. So you feel actually intoxicated. And the feeling is so peaceful. It's similar to being intoxicated. It's very peaceful. And you you think, wow, I'm deeper and I'm feeling more peaceful. You long for it. You know, you you, you enjoy the depth. That's very, uh, that's very dangerous because you have to be aware of how deep you are. You, you can't go for beyond a certain point because of all the other problems with depth. So has so, it happened to you, Raj? Oh, yeah, yeah. It, you have to do it. You have to do it. It's part of what you have to do. So during okay. your deep dive training, and even later, if you do dive at depth, what you do is you take, what the instructor will do is he'll carry a diver slate. You know, the diver slate on which you write, uh, if you want to pass instructions, the one you just hang on, the, the white one. So on the slate, he will ask you at depth, maybe at 30, 35 meters, he will put you with your knees down on a sandy bottom and tell you to write your name backwards. For instance, your name is Heman, and it's H-E-M-A-N-T. Now, you have to think, T-A-N-A-M-E. Now, when you're thinking on, on surface, it might be easy because you can picture it, you can pull backwards, but try doing it at depth. You will, I, I challenge you, most of them you will not, because it'll be like you're drunk. You can't put this together. That it clearly demonstrates the, the effect of narcosis. And narcosis is very, very famous. It is what, uh, you know, as termed, uh, a lot of people, uh, they, 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 they get carried away by narcosis, thinking that, oh, this is great. I mean, I should go deeper because this is, like, fantastic. So, uh, yeah, so that's a problem with nitrogen. So along with, of course, you know, decomposing sickness is uh, what they call the bends. So uh, that's another big problem because accumulation of nitrogen in all these joints, uh, while they're ascending suddenly, can cause people uh, becoming sick. So that's again a part of uh, the challenge of uh, remaining at depth. So you go deeper, you have to take that much time to decompress and come back. So if you don't, then you are in serious, serious trouble. So that's another problem with depth. If you go the deeper you go, the dive, the descent might be to 50 meters, might be just 10 minutes, but you will take at least about 45, 50 minutes to get back because you have to decompress as per what your tells you to do. So yeah, so that's all the technical side of it. But uh, having said all that, the more you use, uh, do your dives under different conditions is when you really understand how uh, the sport works and how uh, exciting it is uh, and how you need to know a lot more before you can do whatever you need to do. And that teaches you an independence and it teaches you that you are safe for yourself and your safety depends upon how good you are. So that, I think, is very character-building in many ways. So it's a kind of sport that wherein you, you have to know yourself well, you have to learn how to do it properly and safely, and you are responsible for coming up back to the surface alive, simple. Even regardless of who's around you, there may be an instructor, there may be a buddy, eventually, if you do have a problem, you need to know how to deal with it. Believe me, I've had it, and I've been there. So um, according to you, and you must have done uh, so many dives uh, uh, by... Which number of dice do you think one sort of sort of gets it? Understand? No, uh, uh, again, again, yeah, again, see, even, again, it depends on yeah, people yeah. to people, right? So, but yeah, absolutely, yeah. But then again, and I and I, and you shouldn't approach this as like I've done this many days, I've gone to this. In fact, depth is truly meaningless, in a way, because you know why? Let's say the deeper you go, the less coral there is. There is actually depth is foolishness beyond a point. What's the point? 
you've got a commercial diver, you have to reach the hull of the vessel wherever the problem is. Or you have to get to the seabed because your work is on the pipe in the seabed. But if you're a recreation diver, your main interest is coral and stuff like that. So coral grows generally at the surface when, when sunlight can penetrate. It grows as a bed wherein there it needs sunlight also. So wherever it's darker and deeper, you don't get coral or anything else. What are you going there for? So if you're trying to prove something to yourself, well, good luck. But uh, I personally am not a big fan of pushing a lot of limits because I say I got a dive computer that shows that I went down. To, by the way, I got one that shows I went down to about 45 meters. That's a maximum I've been there. In fact, that particular dive was to a site wherein a guy had unfortunately passed away. And uh, they put a plaque out there for him. His name was Wallace. And uh, every time we go, we take a bottle of beer and leave it there. So it's just this Wallace's memorial site is the name of the dive site. We just go there just because of that, nothing else. So uh, <laughs> there's no, but you have to experience this because when you dive, and wrecks are another thing. When you're on a wreck dive, then depth makes sense because wrecks can be a lot of fun. And penetrating a wreck, which is like really deep, and then you're getting into it wherein you have to be properly trained for depth. And you have to understand that penetrating something means an overhead environment. And therefore, you have to be extremely, extremely careful and trained for it. But these things you can do uh, if you're trained properly. So uh, as you go on, you slowly, so the number of dives really wouldn't count, but the kind of diving that you do. So for instance, if you always were doing 18, 20 meter dives in very calm waters, wherein there's not much of drift, there's no current, there's nothing challenging, then even after 50 dives, you might not have experienced certain things. And therefore, it wouldn't help. But by and large, your buoyancy and all that, I think about 20, 30 dives, a normal guy, 30, 35 dives, your buoyancy and, all, and a trim and everything will be fine. Most people have problems with their hands because when they do get into the water, initially they start flailing around with their hands. They don't realize they don't need their hands at all. They just need to hold their hands together and remain trimmed and then keep you know, gently finning with your feet. So this, which is why if you have an instructor who's insistent that don't move your hands, just keep them together. And then you just keep finning with your feet and the teacher fin properly, you'll be just fine about 30, 35 times. Great, I think those are very uh, useful tips, especially for folks who are listening in and want to learn scuba diving or pursue it. So let's talk about your scuba diving trips. Uh, there are two parts to it. Of course, uh, A1, you st started snorkeling uh, Gulf of Mexico and okay, decided, okay, hey, I have to go and do scuba diving. So there were a lot of trips which you went on your own. And then later on, you decided, hey, let's go with some folks. Let's form a group. And uh, just like you do your biking tours, let's take people uh, who have company, we can do the dives together. Let's talk about that as well. So where all have you dived? And uh, how different, similar were those places where, or the, uh, especially the uh, marine life and conditions? Uh, yeah, first of all, um, about this, uh, see, once I started diving, what I did was I came back to, to Abu Dhabi, where I live, uh, after I finished the course. And then said, man, I, this is fun. I mean, I need to uh, do some. So my company, which I work for, which is a major oil and gas company, uh, company. They have a BSAC club in the company itself, which is partly funded by the company as a recreational activity for employees. I immediately joined the BSAC and then I started going out with these guys. So there are some dive sites locally. Initially, I took them out here in the Gulf of Muscat. I mean, sorry, the Gulf of Oman, which is what they call Musandam, and it's a small peninsula here. And I started diving there. So 
towards where the UAE border and the uh, Muslim Peninsula, which is part of Oman, they meet. There are some dive sites there. I went out on my own. I took my family, actually, and had them stay in the hotel. So the dive shop was associated with the hotel. And I would go out on these four or five dives and come back over a two-day period. And then after the BSAC, I started going out with them. Then they started, they do a lot of interesting trips because they have a lot of experienced divers out. For you, it's an opportunity to learn. And even though I was paddy, there was an equivalence of the certificate. So I didn't have to train with BSAC. They said, if you want to go to the next level with us, you're welcome. But with your current certification, you can carry on with to the level that is normal for that certificate. So I used to go with them on these levels. And they did some liver boats and all that. So liver boats are where you live on a boat. It goes out overnight, goes to the dive spot. It tows a, a, a dive boat, meaning which is like a rib, you know, the inflatable one. So they tow the rib along. And then all the dive gear is on the main boat. And we live on that boat. Uh, there's a cook and a proper galley and there are uh, proper sleeping accommodations and a proper deck. And these are mainly wooden doves, which are the Arabian kind of doves. That's the ones they have here. Of course, they were very sophisticated dive uh, liverboats. But this one, uh, we go out into the Muslim Peninsula, spend about two to three days diving. Every day, it's like three days, three dives a day, then a night dive as well. So altogether, four dives, we do three, about 10 to 12, 15 dives, but then you come back over a four-day period. So this went on. And then I said, I have to up my skill a little bit. And I went back to the Philippines. In fact, I went to Jono itself, uh, the guy who was the Australian fellow who was doing this. And then I think it was two years later, I did my advance. And then I started seriously trying to, you know, wander around, finding dive sites to do them and so on. So, so then I took a three-week holiday in the Philippines and I went all around. Uh, one week I spent, almost eight, nine days, I spent in Corona in Palawan, we're diving the wrecks of a Japanese fleet that was bombed out in September 1944, which is a very interesting, it's one of the best wreck diving in the world, arguably. And uh, then I went down to uh, another island called Bohol, where there's a lot of, including there's an island, uh, rather, there is a, a, a dive site there, they call it Snake Island, where you see these white and black abandoned sea snakes. So many of them, they're all around. It's kind of creepy. But they don't bother you because they can't uh, open their mouth beyond a point to, to bite you. So if you're wearing a three-mill dive suit, uh, you're safe, unless, of course, they can bite you between your uh, fingers, the webbing of your fingers or something like that. Uh, so you just leave them alone. They leave you alone. Everything is where you see the mating. You see small ones, big ones, all over the place. And then there's something called a sardine run. A sardine run is where you get a school of sardines. And these are like at about 10 to 12 meters depth. So it's not very deep. So you go below them and they just sort of swirl around and then they, you know, they change their uh, direction and all that. It's completely silvery because the sunlight sits at that part of it where they go. It's, it's amazing if you've seen birds in flight and you see this, you'll be like, it's something like that. When you see this flock of birds in flight, they all swing together. This is something similar, but it's stunning, the, 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 the effect. And if you leave your, your bubbles from your regulator that go up, they will actually swirl around it. So they will make a, a, a nice, huge, like, swirl with the bubbles uh, from your thing. So you deliberately keep jetting out bubbles, and they will swirl around it. So it's, it's a lot of stuff like this. And uh, so when you, when you start doing these, you realize you're enjoying it because there is so much of variety. Then your skills will accordingly improve. And this is how you slowly get into that lifestyle. So you don't like give this up. But then, of course, it's not easy to, 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 to go regularly and dive. So what I did was, when I came back and I started telling my friends about the, the joy of what I experienced, they really said, hey, we want to try starting up to see whether we can experience something similar with you. Will you take us? I said, why not? 
And it started like that. Actually, it was just that they were listening to these stories and they said, it sounds like it's a fun thing. Plus, of course, it's a fact that it's a holiday. So you go to the Philippines, spend about a week lying on a beach, okay, drinking some beer and all that, learning to dive. Some people say, okay, maybe they use it as an excuse and want a holiday. They come along and they just come there and say, hey, man, after a day, they punch out and they say, I don't want to do anything because I'm not really keen on this. But some guys really take to it. So it, it just happened like that. So I didn't really set out to, to start a you know, group of uh, people and all that. It just started off that where I was narrating my experiences, they, they sort of bought into it. Now it's slowly become like uh, every year I do about four trips in the Philippines, mainly. So uh, it's full all the time. I mean, I've got about six guys generally because I can't take more. There are so many challenges. And uh, because if I take these people, they, they're always, there's a time budget. So it's normally a five to six day trip. Four days after the course, there's a back and forth from Abu Dhabi. It's a nine to 10 hour flight. So I have to arrange transport, including uh, from the airport to the ferry terminal. They take an overnight, I mean, rather a two-hour ferry. So it's a six-day trip, and uh, they do the course, they certify, and one day they do some fun dives, one or two, if they want to, and then they come away. And later on, if they want to do the advance, I help them, we go back again, they join another group where they do the advance, and these guys do this. Then I also take people who are experienced divers, because for the BSAC club and all that, these people have been to Sipadan in Malaysia, they've been to Araja in Indonesia and all that. They're looking for variety. So they say, Raj, you, because I think people are sort of intimidated by the Philippines somehow. It's a very gritty kind of an experience, especially Manila is a bit of a, like any big city, it has got its, you know, and it's a very gritty kind of city, some parts of it. So people just don't like it, but they see a lot of poverty and stuff like that. It's similar to what sometimes we have in India. So for me, it's not particularly shocking. I've been to some of the worst parts of that city. And I, for me, it's okay. So because people are a little intimidated, they say, can you take us to the Philippines? I said, of course. And it's a friendly, beautiful country. But most people just don't look beyond Manila. There are thousands of islands out there. The people are, are absolutely brilliant. They welcome you, they speak, everybody speaks English. They don't hold it against you if you're brown in the face or black or red or blue or whatever. They treat you pretty much the same. And for supposedly a poorer country, I've seen so many happy people, their children on the streets seem to be happy. Nobody's running after them to pick them up and you know, the moment they start bawling. And they just fall down, they get up and they start playing again. The, the men folk are happy, they're drinking their beers in the evening. But people are just wandering around and being friendly with each other. So, yeah, so th this is, uh, it's, it's an experience that you have. So even visiting that country, even if you're not diving or you want to learn, you will slowly realize that it's a wonderful place to be. Yeah, by the way, oh, you were asking me about where all I've dived. I've dived in, like I said, uh, the Gulf of Oman, uh, Musandam Peninsula. I've dived in Jordan, in Aqaba. I've dived in Egypt to the Sharm el-Sheikh. Uh, that is another very exciting thing because... Uh, they've got some great wrecks, including a world-class wreck called the SS Thistlegold. So this is the Red uh, Sea, right? That's right. Yes, yeah. There's uh, the Red. Sea. So this is actually in international waters. So this is not in territorial waters of Egypt. So it's the mouth of the Red Sea, and this was a World War II supply vessel that was cut, or rather, it was bombed by a German bomber uh, in during. It was on a, a supply mission. Uh, going up to supply the Nazi, uh, sorry, the Allied troops in Egypt and uh, during World War II. And in fact, uh, after it sank, it, was, it lay there undisturbed for a very long time. And I think in the 70s, or was it, uh, no, it was the 50s, the late 50s, 58 or something, uh, Jacques Cousteau, you've heard of Jacques Cousteau? 
Yes, yes, I have, I have. Yeah, so he discovered the vessel. And what he did, I believe that's a story, that uh, he uh, cut the, the mast was sticking out of the water. And they say he cut the mast and lowered it so that there's no evidence of it above the surface so that people don't come and uh, rob it. it. He said it was in such pristine condition that he didn't want divers on it. And uh, eventually some uh, fishermen found it and then uh, it became, uh, uh, well, it became what it is today, which is unfortunately been dived terribly uh, over the last few years. But now there is some relief because of the problems in Sharm el-Sheikh, but uh, those are temporary uh, and, uh, well, you know how things are. Sometimes it can be, you know, over, over tourism is also another problem. We are all contributing to it. Even I have been there and, uh, you know, you can't really, because what they do is there is, because it's in international waters, the vessels that go from Sharm el-Sheikh take about an hour and a half to two to get there. And when they get there, there is no permanent marker boy coming from the stern of the vessel. So a diver has to go down, put a short line on the stern, and then uh, that's the boy for the day. And then that you, we use it as a descent line to descend. It's, it's quite a challenging depth. The currents can be pretty bad sometimes. So you, you descend along that line. And once you finish your dives, you generally do two dives a day. Once you finish your dive and leaving for the night, then the, the other guy will descend and, and remove the short line and take it back up. So every vessel that comes there will be you know anchored there and one fellow will descend. It. So they're pulling at the vessel because it's pretty much an anchor line. So, so what is the depth uh, yes. uh, the wreck is at? I think around 32 to 36. Okay. Uh, from 32 meters. Yeah. So it's it can be a little uh, challenging uh, on in bad conditions. On some days, if the, if the weather is good, then you know it could be. But or else, it can be pretty bad. In fact, I had made a YouTube video of the dive that I had done and put it uh, on YouTube. Uh, I'd done two dives uh, when I went there for that time. Okay. Uh, then, uh, of course, uh, we've done um, a lot of stuff in the Philippines, right around the Philippines. <clears throat> Malaysia, but that's mainly towards Sarawak, Sabah, that side. And uh, the Thailand, of course, Koh Tao. Like I said, I took my daughter there and got her certified. What about India? Andamans, Lakshadweep? That's a, that's a very interesting, uh, I think I've heard so much actually about the Andamans and I would love to go there. And since I am ex-military, I do have some, you know, friends who are still serving and uh, they are uh, in Karnikobar and all that. So uh, I keep, uh, they keep telling me that you should come down and check it out. And I wish to. Though I've been diving only for three years now, but uh, there has been quite a bit of uh, awareness about scuba diving in India. And a lot of young divers are taking to it. A lot of millennials are taking to it. So, uh, so it is increasing quite a bit. Another point is, like you said, the millennials are a different group altogether. We just can't count them into any of them because they are more risk-taking, they are more ready for anything, they're more adventurous. The best part is they also have the resources to do it. See, imagine one of the biggest problems with diving is the gear. A good uh, see, like I have a dive computer, which is the basic one. I use a, a Suntos Zoop, and that costs somewhere I don't know 400 euro or something like that. But a good quality dive computer would set you back at least by about a thousand euro or a thousand dollars. A VCD would cost you somewhere the reason for five six hundred dollars. And if you get your own gear, which of course you don't need to, like I I don't own other than a wetsuit. Uh, and which again I don't carry because when I travel I'm traveling light and I get everything rented there 
And if you carry a wetsuit, you have to dry it out on the last day after you dive. So that means you can't travel that day or you're traveling with a wet wetsuit, which is like terrible. If a wetsuit weighs two kilos, chances are it weighs five kilos when it's wet. And on top of it, your flippers, your fins, you don't need that. Meaning that's going to be like bulky. And then your VCD, of course, that VCD is always maintenance intensive. So you have to rinse it out completely in the shorter and all that. So you might as well rent everything out there. So I carry my mask and I carry my dive computer. But even then, the cost of diving, for instance, anywhere you go, if you go to the Great Barrier Reef and all that, you'll pay, you know, you'll have, they'll separate your arm and leg from you. It's ridiculously expensive. A liverboard uh, is like, you know, you can cost you in the region about $1,500 or so for a five-day liverboard. A dive course in, in Kota, which is the cheapest, will cost you somewhere in the region. Of, like, I take these guys on these, on these trips. It costs around uh, close to a lakh of rupees for about 10 dives and uh, five days of stay and FS, which is cheap because any dive holiday will charge you double that. So if you're going on at least two or three dive holidays a year and you're spending about a lakh of rupees for, for the dives and maybe 10 or 12 dives, so it's not a cheap thing. This is putting people away for, for that for a lot. But in India also, the paddy costs cost somewhere in the open waters about 20 to 25,000 rupees. And each dive would cost you in the region of, I, I think it's almost about uh, $25,000, rupees a, a, a dive. If you're going with full uh, tank and weights and uh, uh, gear, I mean, you'll be CD and you're regulated and everything, you're rented. Maybe more. So the question is like, the millennial, millennials could afford it. I'm sure if they have jobs that can take them there, but the others, it might be easy. It's all been glamorized a little bit in films like the Zindagi Naimilegi, Dubara, and all that. But when you come down to paying for it, you, people will just say, I'd rather go, you know, drink up a storm with my buddies. I've spent a ridiculous amount of money on dive, on dive holidays and diving. And my wife says, I mean, you enjoy it so much. I said, yeah, I do. But then it, a lot of people are suffering through the initial stages because they're not really enjoying it. The enjoyment comes much later when you get better and better at it. I think that's so true. And I can uh, say it from my personal uh, experience as well. And it goes for anything. You have to like it. You have to like the trick. You have to like the mountains to do it. You have to like the water to dive. You have to like the bike to ride it. Uh, then only you will actually enjoy it. Otherwise, yes, it is expensive. And... Uh, as you rightly said, you don't have to buy everything. You can go to uh, any place, be it a Thailand or Andamans or wherever, just rent it out. Uh, and if you get better and with more dives and more certifications, maybe you could, I think mask and dive computer, I think um, that's the only thing you could actually invest in. Otherwise it's so difficult to carry the others, which you can get anywhere, for example, I was in Great Barrier Reef last year, and you're, you're right about the prices. It's I, I did a, a two-day liverboard, which uh, sent me off like whatever, <laughs> quite a bit. But yeah, I mean, if you've go, gone to Great Barrier Reef and don't do so many dives, it's not worth it. But so I had to do that. So, uh, again, uh, Hemant, 
Yeah, so, sorry, but this see here, the problem is like you said, I would suggest anybody wants to get some gear, if they've done the courses and they, they should get a dive computer because first of all, it's a diver safety requirement. So you're going to deco, I mean, your decompression and all that, you need to be very, very sure how long you can remain at that depth and so on. So it's a, it's a safety requirement. Now, number two, your mask. Your mask is primary because if you've got a flooded mask, it will ruin a perfectly good time. So your mask has to fit you well and you have to be very, very comfortable with it. Other than these two, the rest is. But even the others, you know, like I had a safety incident. I was in uh, Koron and Palawan where I was diving these wrecks. I was with a dive shop. It was a German-owned dive shop. I'm not going to mention the name. It's not their fault. But it was my mistake. What I did was uh, I, was, uh, I had the uh, regulator. And uh, I didn't, probably didn't check it properly. What happened was I went down there uh, and I was actually inside the wreck. Must have been about 30, 32 meters. I was trailing another guy. The dive guide was right in front. There was a second guy behind him. I was behind him and there was another person behind me. So the four of us were a group and we were following one another through a, a, an enclosed hatch, which is inside the vessel. It's pitch dark. I've got a flashlight. Everyone's got one. And we're just shining it on and moving on. And what happened was, you know, the regulator has got a mouthpiece which you put in your mouth. So that's your primary regulator. And it's got two pieces that you use to bite your, both your teeth, sort of sit on that. The two pieces, if you, when you take out your mouth regulator, you will see what I'm talking about. And one of these rubber pieces from the right-hand side just broke off because it had been bitten through. It had been bitten through by somebody. It is a rental equipment. After all, people, when they get a little panicky or when they get a little excited, they tend to cleanse their teeth and that so slowly cuts it up. This piece actually broke off and down my throat. And had it not been for somebody up there, whoever is up there sitting there smiling at me, I would have been dead meat because I couldn't get it out. And I was on, I was on an inhale uh, uh, cycle when this went in. So an inhale cycle is generally when you've exhaled and you're out of air is when you're inhaling. And this just went and jammed down my throat. Initially, I tried to swallow it, the fool that I am. It, it, it would have gotten further, but it didn't go down. So what I did was I had the presence of mind. And all of this was happening while I was in this, side, in this vessel at 32 meters in a pitch dark overhead environment. And I pulled my regulator out. And you know how you know, intimidating that can be. You pull the entire regulator out, and then I managed to dislodge it from my throat and put, took it out with my, with my fingers, put my regulator back in, and started living again. Now, I still have that uh, piece with me, by the way, and uh, I want to frame it and put it up like, you know, uh, that piece where it broke off, it, that rubber portion actually comes off the regulator. I know they noticed. It's tied down with a cable tie. And I went back to the boat, and this German woman who's a dive shop owner, she was livid. She actually told me, how the hell did you get out of that one? Because she has spares on board. She took this off and immediately replaced the new one. But she was saying, man, I should be more careful. She's talking herself, saying she should have been more careful, making sure none of these are been through. But now, I, when I look at these things, I'm very, very careful when you take rental equipment. It can be a faulty hose from here, a little bit of a bubbling from the main regulator. When you're underwater, you notice something like that. I'm telling you, take off the regulator, put another one. If you see anything anywhere, that's compromised. And the, the poorer, or the cheaper dive shops, that's the problem. The equipment of the gear can be compromised. So uh, sometimes it's made more sense, like in Australia or whatever, like it's safer sometimes to pay a top dollar because you're getting good quality gear and the gear is what keeps you alive underwater. So you don't want any surprises on that one. Yeah, but, Yet, but... Uh, what you say is, yeah. 
Yeah, but but uh, regardless, you know, whether you're paying top dollar or not, I think it's it's good practice to test it yourself. And, and that's what they teach you in uh, the certification courses. For example, I was driving in Zanzibar two years ago and uh, my host just burst. Luckily, I was, I think, only six, six meters down. Six, we were just descending and then it happened. So... <laughs> You mean you mean it came completely off the off the Cylinder. octopus from the back? Yes. Oh my God, that is terrible. <laughs> that means you have no airflow, and this is jetting out from one side, like there's a motorboat that is behind your ear, right? Right, right. And so, your your breather is completely empty. So you right. went up to a buddy and pulled. Exactly. So the uh, the dive instructor was with me. He gave me his uh, octopus, and uh, I we were not too way too down. I think around five six meters. Then we just came up. So you're very, so, very lucky because if you had been at a depth wherein he was maybe about 10 meters away from you or 15 meters away, that's all it would take for, for you to, you know, panic out there. Absolutely. I, absolutely. I, 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 I've seen, by the way, I've seen this happen. I've seen the exact same thing happen. And that is because the, the aluminum uh, kind of a clamp, the crimp that goes onto the rubber part, the braided part, that is the one that blows out. And when it blows out, it completely empties your tank right from there. And you've got nothing coming out of your primary regulator. And you are, you are I would say, you are finished, you're dead meat. <laughs> yeah, that's what you said uh, when we started this podcast, that it, it is a life-threatening sport because, you know, we are in hostile conditions, you know, down below. And we should be trained. So, you know, uh, in be certified where they teach you all this to check your equipment right before do that. And let's say, if, even if the equipment fails, what to do? So I think uh, while it's a good leisure sport and it's beautiful out there, uh, I think these are certain things which we just need to keep in mind. Absolutely. And not only that, it's, it's see, but as part of diver training, you have the, so panic is what is really, really dangerous. I've actually seen a diver uh, who was with us, we were a group of four. I think there was one dive guide, not an instructor, a dive guide. So there's a lot of difference. Dive king can do only this much, right? An instructor is trained to deal with an emergency. A dive guide is not. He's just an open uh, dive master. So this person who, who we were with, he uh, was. we were at about 22 meters or so, and everything was fine. That person was great. I mean, the water, we've been there for 20, 25 minutes, and it seemed very comfortable. And then for some reason, I was right uh, next to, meaning about maybe two to three meters below, and this person just took uh, his uh, mask off and then started ascending, just like that. And uh, the, the and, and took uh, his regulator off as well. Completely out of the blue. And then the dive guide noticed he went chasing up to that person and then tried to shove this thing back, and he would push it away. He actually put it in and then that guy pushed it away. And then they were ascending at the same time. And I was chasing him. I thought this person was a goner because he was like struggling. So what actually, so we anyway went up to the surface and then if he was in a total panic and then this guy quieted down. So fortunately he had not lost consciousness. He might have drunk a lot of water, but that's about it. And he got him to, you know, calm down, inflated his BCD, got him calm on the surface and said, we better go down immediately because I don't want you having any decompression sickness problem because you ascended way too fast from that day. Put it back on and brought him down. It turned out, he then spent another 10, 15 minutes, decompressed, took him up and then that was it, it was fine. But that person was uh, open water 
and was very, very, had already done about 10, 15 dives, was comfortable. The, what he tried to do was he tried to clear his mask. And in the bargain, he lifted up his mask and flooded it completely. And he had forgotten that he had to blow through his nose and all the other. And he just took it off like in a pit of a... And he had a total panic. And then he wanted to get to the surface. And in that bargain, he thought taking his regulator ride would help or something like that. So it's panic and that kind of a, a diver behavior can be very, very, you know, it can, it's got not, nothing to do with equipment, but you can kill yourself doing that. So what we, sometimes we do forget that, okay, so we've got a lot of water in your mask or it's stinging your eyes, you're breathing through your nose, it's choking you up because you've forgotten the basics. Now that is because you're new. So awareness of these and seeing these in action, then you realize that, man, these are things you need to talk to people or calm them down. And before we do anything clearly, explain how these things work, regularly practice and so on. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's uh, good advice. So you have dived, dived in quite a few places. And um, what is your bucket list for diving? Where do you want to go? Where <laughs> do you want to go? <laughs> and why? I, yeah, I, one is, of course, it's, uh, you have heard of Tubataha Reef. Uh, no. Reef. Yeah, okay. So Tubataha Reef is, again, it's uh, my beloved country. So it's the Philippines. Tubataha Reef is a reef which is about 150 kilometers, uh, I think, so west of uh, Porto Princesa, which is in the islands they call Palawan. So this reef, this is supposed to be a stunning dive site. Uh, first of all, the diving is restricted to three, three months a year. So you and uh, because those are the weather conditions are like that. Number two, there are no shore diving possible in the sense you can't go on a day trip on a boat, dive and come back. So there's only a liverboat possibility. Number three, because it is a world uh, marine UNESCO World Heritage Site, there is no fishing, no nothing at all permitted. So the sea life grows to kind of mammoth proportions which you don't get to see otherwise. And people have dived. Actually, I know a person who owns a dive, a liverboard uh, vessel. She, actually, she owns three. One in the Grand Cayman, one in Egypt in Hurghada and uh, Sharm el-Sheikh, and one in the Philippines. And she has told me firsthand, because she accompanies these trips, she says, there's nothing to do. And I believe what she says, because she's been in the business long enough to know a good dive site from a bad one. So that's on my list. And actually, we were planning for last year, which was, I was in the Philippines in 2020, February. I'd taken a group there. And in June, I was supposed to be going on the liverboard. That's when the liverboards open. So, uh, for at least for Tubatahari. And by the way, uh, if you look at a 1,000 peso note, which is a Filipino currency, you will find that uh, on the other side, it's a picture of Tubatahari. Wow. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So, there's uh, otherwise, uh, for the Grand Cayman and all that, I've heard that the, because my experience with Cozumel that time and later on, uh, what I see there, the visibility is stunning. In, in in the Grand Cayman. So that would be a very good reason to to, to dive there as well. And of course, uh, finally, uh, the, before anything else, I would like to go to the Galapagos Islands, which is a, uh, which is in Ecuador. They say that diving there is out of this world. It's a mm -hmm. kind of a, a vol volcanic, uh, yeah. There's some kind of sea life that you see there which you don't see anywhere else. And I think uh, Charles Darwin was there in 1835. Yes. Uh, yeah, so uh, that, that's also on my list of, uh, yeah. But it's, it's, again, extremely challenging because, for one thing, it's ridiculously expensive. 
Yeah. So all of these, uh, I think we'll have to either, you know, like uh, sell a house or something and then get on with it. So, <laughs> so great. I think uh, one last thing I want to touch upon, uh, which is the fifth fact, which I didn't talk about uh, when I started this podcast, which is the pollution. So the fifth fact is 8 million metric tons. That's how much plastic we dump into the oceans each year. That's about 17.6 billion pounds or the equivalent of nearly 57,000 blue whales every single year. It is estimated by 2050, ocean plastic will outweigh all of the ocean's fish if we continue to go at the same pace. So this is horrifying. <laughs> So let me uh, tell you, let me tell you one story uh, or experience which I had and how I strongly feel about this. Uh, this was again two years ago. Me and my dive buddy, we were diving uh, uh, in Sri Lanka. This is the east coast, Trincomalee. I think this is, was our fourth dive, uh, the second day, two dives a day we did. I think this was the last dive. There was sort of uh, that guy was showing us a topilo there and all that, we saw that. Then we start, okay, he said, okay, let's go up to the boat, and we started ascending. And um, uh, I could see the sun, so we were very close to the surface, uh, and I could see the sun rays and all that, and I see this beautiful white fish, you know, floating uh, very close to the surface. So I swam towards it, we are still underwater, and uh, try to touch it, obviously knowing that I won't be able to touch the fish. But I happened to touch it. Can you believe that? And then I realized it's a white plastic bag. That is terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. <laughs> so anyways, this is, uh, this is what is happening. I think, uh, I don't know uh, what you feel about this issue and have you thought no, about I, I'm, I'm not, yeah, I'm not surprised. Have you heard of the great uh, Pacific uh, Ocean garbage patch? Uh, no, I have not. Whoa, man, that'll blow you away. It's a garbage patch that is floating out there in the Pacific Ocean. And uh, there are two. One's called the Eastern Garbage Patch and one the Western Garbage Patch. And it is ridiculously huge. You should Google it and you'll be surprised. You should read up on that. It is just uh, garbage plastic garbage that's been generated by the uh, Pacific Rim countries. And it is uh, including uh, North America, South America, Asia, everything. This somehow seems to sort of accumulated and has, it's just going round and round and round as a marine patch on the surface. It's, it's terrible and it has been estimated that uh, it is about, uh, it co the patch covers approximately the ocean cleanup project some say that this covers almost 1.6 million square kilometers. Can you believe it? Wow. So this, this ocean garbage patch, and most of the plastic, they say, is over 50 years old. For some reason, which is because of currents and all that, it is accumulated around that, and it goes around as a big patch. So uh, what we, we see here, we have, like, I'm regularly a member of our uh, cleanup groups and all that. Here in Abu Dhabi, for instance, we have a, a maritime club and we have of course our own diving club and we partner with them we do underwater cleanups and so on but this is relentless see the, the kind of stuff that they throw in and it's a kind of culture that you think you can do what you want and you know, the consequences don't matter 
this is how we've treated nature. It's not just water, it's everywhere. It's a kind of culture that we, we, I don't even begin to understand how we can you know, correct this. The only way we can do it is to teach our children and everything, because I don't think this is going to get sorted out anytime soon by anybody with any amount of money, because too much damage has been done. But yet, all we can do is be a see, like cigarette butt takes about 50, 50 years disintegrating the water. So people just sit on a boat and chuck things out, or cigarette butt even. It just doesn't go away. So we, we just have to, you know, sort of teach, and we are very, very very violently uh, sort of, you know, uh, activist when it comes to people who start throwing things into the water and all that. But you can only, only do this much. But I would say awareness and more participation in these kind of... But there was a guy in Vijayawada somewhere, him, him and his wife, I heard of a diver who was cleaning up uh, the, the beaches. He was going around into the water, diving and cleaning on a regular basis. I mean, those are the kind of people, they're not even getting enough attention that they deserve. But we should be must start, you know, the policing these people. But there is a movement now slowly, like recently I was in Calicut, Kodikot, which is where I was born and raised. There is something called a blue uh, flag beach, where beaches are certified by some international body for a lot of things, cleanliness, for, for what the water quality is like, whether it is swimmable and what the uh, uh, infrastructure is available around and so on. These people are priding themselves in the Kapar Beach, which is where uh, Vasco de Gama landed in 1492 or whenever he came in. That's the beach that he came on. And it was a mess about 15 years ago. But I saw it just about maybe a year, year and a half ago. They cleaned it up completely. The whole seafront was different. They put this blue flag there. They were proud of that certification. So maybe we will be... See, I, I have a lot of hope on younger people. They are not as bad as a lot of us, in my view. And they are more, uh, I would say, I would say, concerned about these kind of things a lot, lot more than uh, what we people used to be. And uh, so, therefore, hopefully, we just keep spreading the message. And I'm sure it will get there sooner or later because there's no other choice. The earth will move on, and we will just probably, you know, end up underwater or whatever. And we are all, uh, you know, fish food anyway at some point. <laughs> so, it is to our own peril. And we had better learn. Yeah, I think you're uh, absolutely right. I think what scuba diving does is uh, it, uh, one, gets you an understanding of our oceans. And once you get, once you're enjoying it through scuba diving, through leisure diving, you get to know the problems around it, which is, you know, water pollution and you know, how it's harming marine life, uh, etc. So I think awareness is the key and way to go. I mean, the more we become aware, the more we will raise our voice against all this. So, yeah. Absolutely agree with you. Yeah. Great. And I, I have to tell you, Hemant, I mean, this approach that you take, see, it, the, uh, a lot of times we have to look beyond the money part. We have to look beyond what is a cost benefit or what is our advantage in terms of money. We have to look at how we spread this message. And I really appreciate what you guys are doing out there in Rustic Travel because it has to be far beyond profits. It has to be with a conscience. It has to be for a very compelling reason and it has to be sustainable. It's a very strong word. So good luck with what you're doing. And I really have to tell you and Rajesh and the rest of you all, please keep up this kind of work and we need more people like you to take on this flag for responsible tourism, experiences that are meaningful, 
fulfilling at the same time are socially and, and responsible from a nature point of view. So there you go. Thank you so, so much, uh, Raj, for coming here and spending a lot of time, a lot of your time to talk to us about your two passions and uh, on traveling as well, uh, which uh, a lot of people who are listening to this definitely, you know, will benefit from your pearls of wisdom. Thank you so much. Thank you, Eamon. Good luck and uh, all the very best. Thank you so much for listening in to another episode of the Rustic Travel Podcast. Hope you liked it. Please do send us your feedback so that we could improve with each episode. To get updated on future episodes of the shows, you could visit our website rustictravel.com forward slash podcast and subscribe to any of the podcasting apps as mentioned there. You could also follow Rustic Travel on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter to know about the new episodes or shows. Till then, do subscribe and listen in.